Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. Really excited to have uh, a guest with us here this morning, uh, at least on our time in the West Coast. We have with us today Dr. Chuck DeGroat. Um, he's a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. He's also a faculty member of the Soul Care Institute, author of several books on just kind of integrating psychology and counseling and the faith. But one we wanted to talk about that you, I think, wrote most recently is When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing for Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. But first off, uh, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on and taking some time with us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really good to meet all of you. So I guess just to start it off, uh, I'm really curious what led you to write a book about narcissism coming to the church because i do think it was probably written a little before the massive explosion of all these scandals so like were you a prophet or <laughs> what, what, what was the deal with that no you know so i uh, i started in pastoral ministry in the mid 90s and i did i did a d dual degree an mdiv and a counseling degree and so i was doing a lot of counseling uh and i was in a denomination called the pca uh, it was a church planning denomination, uh, I think for maybe a decade, the fastest growing sort of church planning denomination in the United States. And and it was within that context, both in my, my counseling, my pastoral counseling, my ecclesial work, and in some of the work within the church planning world when I first started getting involved in some assessments and stuff like that, that it, it, it sort of... Uh, hopped on my radar now we're talking like late 90s early 2000s and and i didn't at the time i wasn't calling it narcissism but i was talking about things like emotional and spiritual abuse and mm. uh these dynamics were out there uh it, it's interesting now that we're living in a time where it just seems like there's so much of it right because i i do think that if you sort of rewind to 20 plus years ago at, at sort of, at least in, in my time, when we were doing a, a lot of church planting, you know, Tim Keller had started Redeemer, and there were a lot of, at least in my context, a lot of people who wanted to do what Tim Keller did, wanted to duplicate the success, wanted to be like him. Uh, I, for me, this has been around for a long time. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, I would say it goes back a lot further than that. But mm. it's uh, what prompted me to write the book was I had been doing some consulting work in churches and pastors were telling me, hey, listen, you've got the clinical experience and the pastoral experience. Just write about your experience. I didn't want to write about it. So I needed a few pastors to sort of twist my arm. I was like, ah, why do I want to write about narcissism? That's the last <laughs> thing I do. But yeah, they twisted my arm. Yeah. And now you're the, the church narcissism guy. I mean, in, in, in a good way, right? So <laughs> I, I hate that, you know, because I had written a book called Wholeheartedness. So, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, now to be, you know, to be sort of known a little bit more for the narcissism stuff doesn't make me so happy. But oh, well, that's <laughs> it. how it goes. Got well, it. it helps people. It helps people tremendously. So and that I hope like so. Yeah, I guess, you know, to even like go into a little bit, uh, can you explain like what it means to be a narcissistic leader? And even like more specifically, like what's the difference between like a strong leader versus a narcissistic one? Because I feel like a lot of us, we just see them as being strong or being like courageous, <clears throat> but, you know, there could be an unhealthiness to it. So how would you describe it? Yeah, uh, and, and that's for a really important distinction, right? There are there are uh, there's strong leaders and confident leaders and inspiring leaders and impactful and influential all these words that we tend to use right and that does not equate to narcissism and I think 
one one of the reasons I wrote the book was to to kind of help make that distinction. I mean, I think nowadays I get a little bit worried that we were too quick to use the language of narcissism, mm. and I wanted to make sure that we were using it well and responsibly. Uh, I do tend to to think that uh, those who are elevated on the narcissistic spectrum not only have sort of the common features of, of grandiosity, uh, attention seeking, entitlement low empathy, things like that, but uh, they tend to lack curiosity, self-awareness, uh, awareness, and humility. And, and that's what's really important. I mean, I think uh, you can be a powerful leader, but if if you're not mindful of your power, if you're not self-aware, that's a problem. If you're not humble, that's a problem. And I think what we find is the the more elevated someone is on the narcissistic spectrum, the, the less likely they are to be curious about how they impact people, how they're behavior comes across. Uh, and so I'll, I'll see people in my counseling work, in my consulting work, who are really confident, impactful, inspiring leaders who, when we start to dig in, are also really curious and really humble. Um, but not that's not the case for someone who's elevated on the narcissistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think, you know, um, I think there's a lot being written around whether this is like a chicken or egg situation. Like, do you think the pastorate in general draws, you know, people who have maybe uh, elevated narcissistic tendencies, or do you feel like there's something about the modern church as we know it that kind of is a breeding ground for narcissism? Yeah. Uh, can I just say yes to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I uh, I see a, I see a bit of both, and it's it's really hard to say. Um, I do think. I do think that um, I've seen over the years, uh, particular people drawn to ministry uh, because they see it as an opportunity to to get on stage and speak on behalf of God. Right there, there is something that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, may draw people to ministry in a way that they're not drawn to landscaping or plumbing or something like that. Right. Uh, I, I've also seen. I, in fact, I've seen this with people I've worked with, students that I've I've trained back in the day when I was still in Orlando. I was I was a pastor in Orlando and I adjuncted at Reform Theological Seminary. And I'd say that I I worked with particular students who appeared pretty humble and pretty curious, but who found themselves in ministry and then and then work, became sort of isolated, uh, began to uh, believe. Uh, what the press was saying about them, so to speak, you know, began to sort of um, imbibe the compliments and the approval. And 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 I think there was a kind of uh, growing sort of development of narcissism in them, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, and so maybe there was sort of an incipient narcissism that grew in them that I didn't quite see. And a, a test, let's say, like a clinical test wouldn't have picked up on necessarily, right? So mm. it's it's really hard to say. And that's what makes it confusing. And, and I'll, I'll say this, I often get people reaching out saying, hey, can you give me the test that you give the people for the narcissism thing, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, that's, there's not a narcissism test. There are particular clinical tests that we can give people to sort of see where they are in terms of elevations. But there are a whole lot of things that we base this on. And, and, and there's also that sense in which we see it sort of grow in particular contexts in ministry, particularly when there's a lack of sort of accountability and relational feedback and um and when people are, are sort of insulated 
I, I guess one question I have before even we continue the conversation is for those that are listening, I think even the term narcissism often can just be used to convey a, a, a whole lot of meanings, maybe even yeah. objective or subjective. So I guess for you in your you know research, how would you best describe a narcissist? Like what are the actual attributes that uh, I like, you know, what, what identifies you as a narcissist? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> go, going back to a little bit of what we talked about already, I mean, you'll see the grandiosity, sort of the typical grandiosity, you'll see entitlement, you'll see approval seeking, and you'll see low empathy. And those are typically, let's just, I'm boiling it down to like the four um, clinical attributes of someone who's yeah. narcissistic, right? Um, but we know narcissism is a lot more complex than that. Uh, we know that there's a kind of grandiose form of narcissism that you see in in uh, particular pastors, large church pastors. But there there's also a, a kind of uh, less grandiose version of narcissism. Um, a, a, they, they call it in some uh, circles vulnerable narcissism that looks more like a smug superiority. It looks more mm. passive aggressive. Mm. Uh, it's the person in the small church who doesn't have the big stage who says, you know, I, we're although we're we're a small church we have the truth you know we've we've got the we're the only people with the right theology uh and so uh yeah narcissism one of the things that you'll probably notice that i did in the book was i i tried to describe the nine faces of narcissism to say that hey this looks different there's a clinical definition of it but this looks different in different people and in fact there there are people who are kind of shy and uh passive who may be elevated on the narcissistic spectrum. It's just that in their passivity, they're wielding power in a way that looks different than the person who's more grandiose. Hmm. Does that make sense? Very helpful. Yes. Yeah. Why, why do you think people are so drawn to like narcissistic leaders? Like, do you feel like it's because like they're just so gifted and we want that or we want like father figures? Like, is there something that you could pinpoint like why we're drawn to narcissistic leaders? Yeah. Yeah, so so I, I think I think that you're on to a couple of things there. I mean, I think we we are drawn to people who are gifted, uh, who are well spoken, charismatic. Uh, there's something about you know just just like we're drawn to shows that are <clears throat> that are well produced, well done, right? Versus TV shows that aren't as well produced. Uh, we're drawn to sports events where the play is really at a high level versus sports events where. Um, like my New York Giants, where I grew up, where the play is not at such a high level. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so we're drawn to leaders, I think, who uh, are well-spoken, articulate, intelligent, right? But at the same time, I do think that there's a dynamic that some have pointed to. Uh, in fact, there's a really brilliant writer named Gerald Post. He, he was a CIA profiler. He's written books on the narcissism of of everyone from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump. So I don't get in trouble with anyone who's listening right now, you know, but, <laughs> and he'll say, he'll talk about a kind of collective dynamic, also collective narcissism, where the follower, he calls that the ideal hungry follower is looking for something. Uh, he or she may not know what she's looking for, but there are some like psychological needs being met in that relationship with, with the narcissistic leader. And so there's a sense in which if you feel kind of insecure, you're not kind of sure of where you are, who you are, what you think. To be under the kind of uh, uh, dominant teaching, the kind of uh, wise teaching of a mega church pastor who gives you a sense of your worth in the world, who kind of talks about your purpose in life or whatever it is, can feel really good and really important. 
And as you say, it might meet some kind of father needs or mother needs or psychological needs in that sense as well. But there's a sense in which we, we sort of attach ourselves to people to sort of make up for our own sense of deficiency at times. And that could be a need for belonging, a need for power, a need for security, um, a need for, it could be a need for just about anything. I guess on that note, um, you know, I, I'm sure there are people listening who they're not sure, you know, mm -hmm. and I think especially with things like spiritual abuse, a lot of times you don't even realize you were, you know, in a, in a toxic culture or you, you were spiritually abused until it's too late or, or after the fact, um, kind of like, um, you know, I know you mentioned a few of the qualities of a narcissistic leader, but are there any kind of other telltale signs of, yeah. uh, of a culture, um, of narcissism or, you know, some symptoms people can look at and say, okay, I should kind of think about that or I sh we should pause here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're getting at that the person who's a, sort of the proverbial frog in the slow boiling pot, right. That sort of wakes up to the reality of, of, of narcissism, uh, or spiritual abuse or emotional abuse in their, their environment. And, and I've seen it. I, I named some characteristics of a narcissistic leader and, in the in the book and I've, I've seen it play out in a number of different ways um and I'll, I'll just kind of um i'm not going to go through a list or anything like that but it's it's sort of like in, in cases like this where you know just the other day i'm talking to someone who said yeah i i took the job and i felt so empowered at first and he loved my ideas and he gave me some creative uh, uh bandwidth to do what i wanted to do but then uh, slowly just started kind of pulling things that I had offered or done or marginalizing me in conversations. And it felt like I went from being really trusted um, to, to being out. Um, and, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's things like that. It's, it's these confusing dynamics where it feels like you're in or you're out that you had trust and now you don't have trust uh, that that can be kind of challenging or difficult. Uh, I, I think that one of the, things that I talk about and others talk about is this feature called gaslighting, where uh, you tend to begin to feel kind of crazy. And that can be for any num number of reasons. Uh, uh, there was another guy that I, I did some work with who was under a narcissistic leader where he was doing a lot of the production and writing of, of the even the material of, of the leader. Um, but after a while, the leader starts saying, well, no, this is my material. I wrote most of it. And he started, he told me after a couple of years, he started believing that he actually didn't write the, mm. the material, right? Like mm. I, <clears throat> I didn't just write that book for him. And, and when he started doing some therapies, like, yeah, I wrote like 90% of that book. Wow. How did I get to a place where, where I doubted that reality? But one of the things that can happen is these leaders could sort of shape reality for you. Um, and there are some of us who tend to be susceptible to that. I know for me as a young pastor, I was really susceptible and I, I sort of plugged into the power and authority and persona of a leader with some <clears throat> more grandiosity and more presence and more seeming confidence. And um, <clears throat> it was really, it was really hard because I was, I was really, I was kind of dependent psychologically, spiritually dependent on him for a season and doubted myself. Mm -hmm. So one thing you just mentioned about gaslighting that came to my mind: Do narcissistic, uh, like, do narcissistic leaders do they gaslight themselves as well? Like, is it, yeah, like, are they able to understand who they actually are? Because often, yeah. 
you know, there's either high profile or even, you know, the small church pastor, even your manager at work, there are situations where you confront them and they might be gaslighting you, but it almost seems like they can't even comprehend what's going on. So I guess my question is, is a part of that true or is that also part of just like their, their show as a narcissist? Yeah, I think, I think you're spot on, Eugene. I mean, I think that there's a level of self-deception there. And, and I think they've probably been gaslighting themselves for a long time. In fact, when I do the work, and I'm one of these uh, surprising people who have compassion for narcissists mm. uh, because I do the work and I hear the stories. Uh, and that's in no way to minimize. Um, I'm, a, I'm a survivor of narcissistic abuse myself. And so it's no way, in no way to minimize what people have experienced. But when you do the work with uh, these men in particular, uh, by and large men, particularly in ecclesial settings, what you find is that they were they were hurt, they were abused, they were traumatized too. And uh, yeah, in a sense, you're right. They've been gaslighting themselves all these years. They don't live in reality. And when you when you begin to, I mean, I've literally sat with with guys and I've said, so here's what happened, and and they'll say, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. No, that's what happened. You know, we had three other people in there, and if you remember, I I uh, taped the whole thing. This is what happened. You want me to play the tape, you know, and, and I've done that before. I've actually played the tape. And yeah. Wow. I had no idea I did that. Mm. I, I had no idea I was so forceful. I, I had no idea I came on like that. To me, I was just being compassionate to me. To me, I was just being curious. Um, but I now know that I was I was bullying even then. So you're right. And this, this is all very triggering. <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> so in, in light of that, like, who like can or even should be responsible for identifying the narcissist? Because yeah. it, it's it's not the narcissist who's gonna identify themselves, and it's probably not gonna be the congregation. Like, <laughs> is it the elders? Is it the staff? Is it the spouse? Is it a professional counselor? Like, is it anybody who's able to identify that before things blow up? Like, do you feel like it, the burden should be upon somebody, or the capability yeah. should be upon somebody? <clears throat> I that's a really good question, and. I mean, I, I'd hope that that sort of group of people that you name would come together in a way uh, to, 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 to sort of define or determine where there's narcissism. I mean, I would say that I do get calls from pastors who will say to me, who reach out to me and say, I want to do the work proactively. Um, I'd like to know, you know, I've gotten some feedback from people. I, I, do, um, I do these five-day counseling intensives, and I've, a number of them have been pastors coming in saying, hey, I want you to sort of help tease this out over five days uh, to see if <clears throat> perhaps I'm on the narcissistic spectrum um, or if if you see ways that I'm deceiving myself or I've, I've not really attended to my own life or my own story or my own wounds. So, I mean, ideally, it would begin with uh, the person himself or herself sort of telling on himself or herself saying, hey, there, is there something for me to look at? That they would begin to listen to the feedback of a spouse or a good friend or a ministry partner uh, or staff members. Uh, you know that one of the questions, if if you sort of uh, follow, if you read the book or uh, I I, try, I put this out there in different podcasts and other places. Like one of the things I often say is uh, that one of the best questions we can ask as a leader is how do you experience me? And I think. I think that there, if you're a leader who asks the question, how do you experience me, to, to listen to staff members, uh, elders, deacons, uh, other leaders within the church, volunteers, you know, um, and, and if there's a coherent sort of narrative or pattern that you begin to hear, like the volunteer in the children's ministry, the youth pastor, your spouse, they're all saying, yeah, you know, 
it, there are times when you can just be dismissive and minimize, well, that's something to, to look at, you know? So, uh, but I do think there are times just to kind of uh, uh, finish up on that answer. When you do need to bring in a team, you need to bring in a consultant, uh, at times when it gets worse, an investigator, uh, uh, someone with some kind of therapeutic uh, uh, expertise who knows about these things and who can ask good questions and ha has the tools and resources to, to make those determinations, particularly if there's resistance. Should a narcissistic leader that is identified, let's say that process is done, um, should they continue to be in ministry or is there room for healing? I mean, obviously that was a long process where they can get to that point, or is it something that is disqualifying in your eyes? Yeah. Well, I think that that's really case by case and I wouldn't want to make a generalization. I, I will say this, that uh, most of the time it's important uh, to step out of ministry for a time. I don't think, I think it's like the addict, uh, the, the alcoholic in the bar, you know, where it, it's probably wise for you to not step foot in the bar for the next, uh, let's say, year or two. You know, mm. uh, it might it might be that you have a work gathering in your bar <clears throat> two years down the road and you can do it then. But, you know, for the narcissistic leader, it's important to step out of that that mix, you know. And one of the things that we'll find when that happens is that it, there is a kind of withdrawal because narcissism is akin to an addiction, right? So there is that sense of, um, I heard this a, a lot even during COVID, like I don't know who I am without my audience. Um, I don't know who I am without the mirror uh, of, of, of that, uh, that group of people who offers me approval, who says nice things about me on social media or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I would say in general, I'm always looking to sort of say, hey, let's step out now depending on what's happened or what that narcissism looks like, or if, if it's something that they've sort of generated the conversation themselves and they want to sort of self-select out for a season, like one pastor I worked with over the last year, where it's like, I think I need to just be out for six months and see how they do without me and see how I do without them. Great. Uh, there's another pastor uh, who probably 15 years ago, I said, you need to be out of ministry for a decade. He took it really seriously. And I often tell the story that uh, literally about a decade after uh, we we found each other on the street in San Francisco of all places, and he said to me, "Hey, I've started uh, I've started in ministry again," and I got a little nervous even. And he said, "I'm volunteering to clean the bathrooms," and I thought, "Wow, you something's changed over these last ten years." Mm. And um, and it turns out that ten years was really really beneficial to him. And now he's back in ministry, but in a very different way. You know, one of the most interesting things you said in your book that was just fascinating to me, and I'm hoping you could elaborate upon it, is it's not enough for a church to just remove the narcissistic leader. But you have to kind of deal with like the narcissistic church culture that's there. Yes. And I guess if you don't mind like elaborating on what you meant by that, yeah. what does that even look like for churches to do that i do feel like most churches think well if we have a narcissistic problem just remove the guy find somebody new and follow yeah. his lead but yeah you said there's a lot yeah. more work to be done what does that mean yeah well so uh there are systemic dynamics at work always right and and oftentimes narcissistic leaders find systems that are uh are, are ready for them it's like a plug and play you know or they create those systems like uh, church planting or building an organization from scratch or something like that uh too often 
I've gone in and I've done some consulting work and a church has removed the leader and said, okay, we're good now. Uh, you can go go away now, Chuck. You know, you've caused us enough trouble. And <laughs> I've, I've said, hey, no, we are just getting started. Like literally uh, the more significant work now is the work that we need to do with the system. And I think this is where your question is so important, Thomas, because it's, you know, it's one thing to remove that leader, um, but narcissism in a system uh, is, uh, is less visible. Uh, you know, we talk about systemic racism today and people are like, I don't see it. You know, the world's a lot better than it was in the 1950s, you know, and, uh, and, and, and they're not seeing the sort of the microaggressions. They're not seeing sort of the undercurrents and, and um, they're not seeing uh, how we sort of, um, we exist with kind of unspoken rules within a system. And that's often what happens in narcissistic systems. Um, I think I tell the story in the book of, of a, a friend of mine who took a job in a, a large ministry and he followed a leader. I, I, I have no diagnostic reason to say this, but probably the person he followed was on the narcissistic spectrum, if not uh, fully narcissistic. And but but the system itself was a narcissistic system. And and what he began to notice was that they they were wanting him to sort of act and sort of be shaped in the image of the previous leader. Like we need you to go out. We need you to we need you to promote. We're the best discipleship ministry in the United States. And I'm, I'm kind of making that up right now. So you're, you don't figure out what I'm the organization I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was a large ministry organization. And um, and the language was like, we have the best products and we have the best programs and we have the best resources. And there was this, there was a sense that when he was in, when he was in the system, it wasn't just like the, the board, it wasn't just the leadership team, but it was people who are sort of working and, you know, stacking the books in the back room, people are in, in accounting, you know, sort of had this sense of, we are a part of the movement. We are a part of the best. And that's, that's where you realize, oh, uh, you can't just remove a person. You've actually, you've actually got to do, I mean, well, the work, as you might guess, at that point is a lot harder. You know? it, it almost sounds like it's like, I mean, not maybe like a virus that is like yeah. spreading and you have to like, you can't just get rid of patient zero. It's like whoever has that has somehow allowed it to just fill yes. the room. Got yeah, it. that's right. That's right. And the only, you know, the only way through it, um, <clears throat> There is no antidote. There is no COVID uh, vaccine, right? <laughs> in in the case of uh, the virus of narcissism, but the only way through it is for a group of people to sort of begin to uh, catch what they're doing and and to be repulsed by it in a sense, to be humbled by it, and to find their way to some repentance. And 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 you know, when when you get a sort of a cluster of people, others begin to listen, and there's some hope maybe then that uh, people begin to ask questions. But it's a lot harder when you're dealing with a. Uh, with an organization, with a, uh, with a, a larger system. Hmm. Is there a point in which you would tell someone, whether a congregation member or staff member, like you need to leave, um, just yeah. straight up leave. And, and I ask yeah. that because I'm at, you know, the, where I, I would say this gets really messy, especially in the church, especially in the church that preaches, uh, a message around grace and mm -hmm. compassion and <clears throat> forgiveness. Yeah. I can yeah. see kind of one of two things happening and I've seen it happen in the church. One is you don't do anything because you're like, well, we're all messed up and we're all, we're all sinners. Um, mm -hmm. and we all need the gospel. Or I can see someone just kind of continuing to like stay believing that, you know, to leave is to give up on 
change and give up on healing and yeah. you know you know yeah. because because you're kind of called to forgive and and, and show yeah. grace as well and so yeah. can you speak on that a little bit yeah <clears throat> that's a good question um the first part of it is i uh more often than not, don't tell people to leave. I, I work with them to get them to a point of health so that they can choose to leave if they need to leave. And I'll say that for marriages as well as people in churches, right? Um, I think I, I think there is this sort of, people have used my work in a way that I think is not helpful where there's this sense out there sometimes where, where it's just like you'll see on social media, someone will put a short anecdote on social media and just, oh, you just gotta leave, that's a toxic church, you know? Mm-hmm. And we're really quick, I think, at times. There are two extremes, right? There's the one extreme that you just named of like, hey, we're all just sinners and everyone has flaws and, you know, we just need to uh, forgive and forget. what you, you got that, right, where there's kind of um, a cheap grace. Uh, but I think you've got the other extreme where it's like, um, well, I'll pick on Thomas for a second. Thomas, you've got a, you know, you've got facial hair. You're always trimming. I notice you keep your mustache so trim. You're so, um, you're so worried about appearance. He's Thomas is just a narcissist. You know, like people, you use even material that I've I've written to kind of sort of label others. You got to get out of there. Um, and I think that's probably what people worry about when it comes to this sort of notion of cancel culture. Or uh, I know I talked to a lot of really good pastors who are afraid that they're going to do kind of one silly thing or say one, you know, or be accused. Um, and so I think you you have both extremes, right? So I wanna be really careful. Like when I sit with people, I wanna take a long time to, to listen for them to reflect on the system. Um, we, a, a lot, a, a lot is at work, like with my own experience of, of being under uh, a narcissistic leader, um, I, I can't just say it was all him and not me. Um, right now, uh, there, there's a lot there uh, that I can point to that was toxic, but I also brought my own trauma and, and some of my own childhood stuff into that, right? And so I think a lot of that needs to be teased out. Hmm. Uh, and I want to do that work of sort of slowly teasing that out. So when someone says, I'm, you know, I, that's not a place where I can continue to go. It's not healthy for me to go there. It's not a reactive thing. Hmm. Um, because, you know, uh, too often those decisions are made reactively. Um, and it's a just sort of a physiological um, nervous system response, right? A kind of reaction to uh, to survive, basically, rather than a, a profoundly sort of reflective decision to choose health. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm. That's what I'm seeking to do when I work with people. Mm-hmm. See, I guess uh, to go into that a bit more, how do you know when a narcissistic pastor is healed or is actually healing? And and the reason why I ask that is because I feel like. It could be very deceptive many times. Yeah. Like I've heard pastors say, like, "Oh, I'm the healthiest I've ever been," and it's like, "Dude, are you the person to say that about yourself?" Or like the new church that hired him say, "Hey, he's so healthy now," but it's like, "Dude, like, you know, you, you hired him." And so, how do yeah. people know? Like, what are some signs that genuine healthiness yeah. is actually being happening in their in their hearts? Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good question. And um, too often, it's the case where it's sort of like. Uh, I was accused of something and I went to therapy for a couple of weeks or I did a five day thing with Chuck or whatever it is and I'm back and I'm repentant and uh, we're good now, right? Or I, I learned you know, that I'm an Enneagram three and I got that down and so we're, we're all good. And uh, that's not helpful. I think when we're talking about narcissism, we're talking about uh, a, a personality disorder. And that means that there are ingrained patterns, unconscious patterns that they're living out of 
that impact um, all of their life, all of their relationships. And as you can, can imagine, sort of detangling those patterns, if that's the right way of saying it, right? That takes time. I, I know that as I do this work as a therapist, like that takes years. Um, but when you see new patterns, when you begin to see them living in a different kind of way, um, you know, you notice it, you know it. I, I, I see this a lot in marital counseling, right? Where they've sort of lived from, maybe from a, a, a relational style of manipulation or bullying, right? And then there's some genuine repentance and they begin to see uh, what they've done. And we, we start to do the deep work of detangling them from some of those old p patterns. We name some of the ways in which those patterns would develop. And then a spouse says to me, maybe a couple of years later, like, he, he doesn't show up like that anymore. He's really curious. And he's actually comes to me to say, was I manipulative or do you see anything that you need to, to share with me? That That's when we see it. It's not this sort of overnight and we're, we're seeing way too many sort of overnight, you know, I know I sinned, but you know, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. This other church just called me. And uh, now, you know, now he's writing a book and it's a comeback story and it's all under the guise of grace. And that's what makes me kind of throw up, you know, because it's, mm. it, it uses theology in a way that's toxic as well. And it misunderstands grace. Um, you know, St. Paul, after, uh, after the encounter uh, with the living Christ, you know, he goes into the desert for three years, right? That's not like sort of a quick transformation process it's literally he goes into to do like the deep work in the desert uh for three years and so you know do the work is what i often say uh if i could switch uh to some more specific questions i could either get you in trouble or get us in trouble but uh mm -hmm. let 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 it be um in our context uh in the asian american context i find it that you know uh, and i think i told you this even uh, offline before we started, a, a vast majority of Asian American Christians have dealt with a narcissistic, maybe multiple narcissistic mm. leaders, whether it comes in the form of a pastor, a leader, a small group leader. Uh, and I think because the hierarchy in the Asian American church is so rigid and robust, there's mm. so many opportunities even outside of just the pastorate for narcissists to kind of sneak in, uh, sneak in. And I guess the question I have is, if you're in a system or a culture like the Asian American culture of just, there's a lot of honor and shame Mm -hmm. There's no vocabulary for a narcissist because to do that is to bring dishonor to the leadership. Yeah. So if you feel like you are being abused or you're in a situation where like, oh man, my small group leader, my pastor is a narcissist, but I can't say it and no one will believe me. Like I'm kind of stuck. Do you have any advice for people kind of in that type of culture? Yeah. Like should they just get out of it, just find a different yeah. setting to get healthier? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. And, and when I was in San Francisco, I mean, I did... I did a lot of this work and and un, began to understand. I won't even say that I pretend to understand fully this kind of honor shame culture because I didn't grow up in that right. But I'd work with men and women from uh, from Asian backgrounds, right? Who who had to tease this out in a way that wasn't quite as quick uh, and easy as you might say for for others, right? Because there was this sense within like their family of origin that we defer to dad. Like we always defer to dad and grandpa and, and the hierarchy, right? And and that that goes unquestioned. And so, um, and, then, and, then, and then to face like the threat of like, what if you do do that? Mm. Like, what does that mean for me? Um, I may lose my family, I may lose standing, I may lose honor, I may be ashamed, I may, that I, I think 
I, I, I want to sort of name the, the, the great cost and the courage it takes, I think, for someone who comes from a background like that to, to do the work, as I just said a few minutes ago, and, and that the cost sometimes is a community or a family, right? Um, because there is a kind of um, bendedness to the hierarchy. And so uh, I want to be, when I go into uh, sort of context and cultures like that, I want, I, I don't want to sort of impose my own timeline or my own sense of like, this is the way it's going to look, or this is the way it typically works in white churches, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I want to say, what does it look like for you as a community to tease this out? What do you need to name? What conversations do you need to have that might be unique for your context? And oftentimes it's, it's bringing uh, the invisible into the light. And that is the honor-shame dynamic. That is the kind of unspoken rules around hierarchy. That is the deference that we give the pastor so that we, you know, yeah, we've heard some some things about the possible affair or the infidel or, you know, whatever it might be, but it, you know, it's pastor so-and-so. So pastor so-and-so is pastor so-and-so. What are we going to say? You know, it's, it's beginning to sort of face that, uh, that, as I said, it takes great courage and it often comes with a more significant tax than it might come with in, in the white community. Hmm. Do you find, you mentioned infidelity. Do you find that, um, along with narcissism, there's always kind of, it's always connected to other more overt um, sins. Because yeah. we, we one Moral thing failures. we talk about, yeah, we think yeah. one thing we talk about all the time is it doesn't seem like the narcissism part often comes out until there's some bigger yeah. moral failure. Um, yeah, <clears throat> you know, that's often what makes it tricky because when there's not moral failure, but when there is nar narcissism, it's it's harder to get folks to see it. It's harder to get leaders to mm. see it, right? And so, uh, yeah, we, uh, moral failure is moral failure. It's that thing. It's that one thing that, you know, everyone is offended by. He had an affair and that's the line that was crossed. Meanwhile, there are thousand thousand other lines that were crossed before that, right? There were the subtle kind of manipulations in the office. There was the dismissiveness of, of the pastor. There was the pulling people in and then shunning them. There was the, um, there was the bullying. There was all the stuff, right? There are a thousand lines that are crossed, but once he crosses that line, well then he's, so I, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say, here, here are the a thousand other things, you know, besides the moral failure that we need to look at and treat with a, a seriousness, right? Mm. Um, I believe me, I'm not trying to minimize moral failure in any way, right? But I, I do think that these sort of microaggressions, if you want to call them that, um, they add up, right? And uh, I used to back in the day a lot more than I do now uh, work with women who are in emotionally abusive relationships. And I used to find myself in court a lot testifying and, and judges and lawyers would inevitably ask, well, what's emotional abuse? Like there are no scars. Like, how can you prove it? Uh, there's nothing to see here. You know, at least with physical abuse, we've got a bruise, um, a tooth is knocked, whatever, you know, there's blood. But with emotional and spiritual abuse, there are no scars, right? So it's a lot harder. Uh, I remember with one of the consultations that I did with a really large church, I had to make a presentation to a, seven, a board of 70 male elders. Um, and it's about as nervous as I've ever been. I, and I had about a 20-page report that I had written. And I remember having to get up in front of these elders who I know were skeptical, not least because, you know, I was... Uh, 
they had their doubts about me, me being a therapist. Thankfully, I'm an ordained minister as well. So that, that was on my side and I have a PhD. So that was on my side. But, you know, they adopted and, and voted, in fact, unanimously in favor of the report that I had written. But uh, I remember my fear was they're not going to believe that these sort of these more less visible things, you know, are significant. What would you say is, is a difference of the impact of when narcissism comes to a mega church versus when narcissism comes to like a smaller family church? Is there a difference or do dynamics like look the same? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's so hard, right? Because if you've been a part of a small family church, and I've been a part of several of those churches over the years, everyone knows each other's business, right? And, and it, is a, it is kind of a family. It is a small system. And there is a loyalty oftentimes to uh, to the tradition, uh, to the pastor, to the culture of the church, whatever it might be, right? And so it's devastating in small church contexts. It's devastating, right? And particularly in contexts where uh, they were they were really like they they love their senior pastor, and they you know now they feel betrayed, uh, they feel let down by him. I think in larger larger churches have the capacity to sort of absorb this stuff more um, to some degree. And I've seen larger churches be able to sort of survive uh, really hard things, uh, suicides of, of senior pastors, moral failures, uh, uh, terminations and things like that. Uh, but unless, going back to our earlier conversation, unless they do the systemic work, they seem to tend to find the next leader who's a lot like the previous leader, right? And we're seeing this nowadays. I won't name particular stories, but there, you might, if you're paying attention to social media these days, we're seeing this happen. And, and, it, and you know, it's pretty well known and it's been uh, pretty well talked about that there was a lot of fear that that was happening at Willow Creek um, in Illinois, right? That, uh, yeah, we just sort of named some of these things that were going on with Bill Hybels. We thought we sort of discovered some of the patterns and, and now, are we, we setting ourselves up for that exact same leader with the job description that we've just developed, right? Mm. And so that's where, uh, again, just to kind of hit the point uh, one more time, uh, after you dismiss that leader, you got to go back to the drawing board. And as we know, uh, systems, they're, they're cultures within systems. And when we talk about systems, we're not just talking about sort of the above the waterline behaviors, like this bad thing happened and this bad thing happened. We've got to look at theologies and we've got to look at polity we've got to look at the unwritten rules we've got to look at the culture we've got to look at implicit biases and beliefs and there are multiple levels to a culture that we have to look at and sort of tease out and uh for those of us who do this kind of work that might take another couple of years uh and really hard conversations i mean quick follow-up to that kind of kind of joking yet kind of not can mega church pastors not be narcissists like is it is a setting too difficult to resist that? Or do you feel like that's just mm -hmm. that setup, that modern evangelical church yeah. setting, it's just hard to avoid the narcissistic tendencies that, you know, gets drawn out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe that uh, they, uh, it's possible to, to be a mega church pastor and not be a narcissist, um, not least because I do this work. I mean, I've done this work. I've done these five day intensives with mega church pastors who uh, are, are clearly devoted to to their own health and to the health of their congregations willing to ask questions uh, willing to invite other voices in 
I do think, um, if you remember the language from the book, I talked about cluster B personality disorders. Um, it does, I've done lots and lots of, of assessments over the years, church planner assessments, regular pastor assessments, all kinds of assessments of pastors. By and large, pastors uh, find themselves in that cluster B uh, section. Uh, narcissism, histrionic personality, borderline personality, um, antisocial personality. In other words, more dramatic, bigger personalities. Um, we generally don't tend to find pastors of mega churches on the avoidance spectrum or on the dependent spectrum. Uh, and so with that in mind, when I sit down with a pastor and I do some assessment, let's say I do my Milan clinical multi-axial assessment, I've got the spectrum and I say, hey, you're elevated on the narcissistic spectrum. Inevitably, uh, there's a little bit of anxiety, right? Like, are you saying I'm a narcissist? No, 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 no. There's some elevations there. Uh, you're not elevated up to the level of personality disorder, but it might just be picking up on um, a kind of confident sense of oneself, um, a kind of uh, a self-image that uh, has is is, is uh, yeah is pretty confident and strong and impervious. Right? There may be some conversations that we need to have that will uh, cultivate humility in you. If I could ask one question, kind of shifting just to the you know current climate. Uh, yeah. You know, and, you know, I'm going to ask a question about Twitter because Twitter is not a real place, but it kind of is a reflection of, you know, the church. Christian Twitter is a very interesting place. Um, I find Christian Twitter really interesting because it can be a place where narcissism just feeds, like, you know, in, in good ways. I mean, sorry, in bad ways. But on the other side, too, I also find these days at cancel culture, often people are looking for any opportunity to take down certain people. Yeah. Right. And yeah. my question is, like, you know, how do you balance that um kind of yeah. tension because i feel like with social media um of course it can feed narcissism but i think it can also f feed this this uh desire just to see people fall and and um yeah how do you find that healthy balance that's something that i've been struggling with recently yeah well i mean i i think um i've really appreciated social media because it's connected me to people i never would have been connected to you know and, and there's some really beautiful aspects of it but um i do think you know back in the day uh I used to run groups for people with kind of varying things, depression, anxiety, and we'd gather in these groups and would be the safe place to have a conversation about what was going on in your life and maybe some of the pain of your past or maybe some of the hard things that are going on with your pastor. And now I think we use social media for that more. Um, and so we find people who've been through some of the same pain that we've been through. And um, what I, I find is that it's, um, it's a space that can be really activating for people. And what I mean by that, I mean that at sort of a neurobiological and physiological kind of level, like um, your sympathetic nervous system is activated, like people are are amped up in that space. And in, in that space, um, there there is no uh, there is no group leader. You know, there isn't someone saying, hey, let's just take a deep breath and get back to center. Um, you know, that was, you know, how you reacted just now, um, I get it, but I'm surely there's more going on. Like, you, we don't have that. We don't have like a curator, a steward of social media health, yeah. right? So, and I know I, I've shown up like that, particularly in my earlier years, you know? And so there's this sense that <clears throat> I, I want to um, I, I invite people to become aware of how they show up in those spaces, right? And how... Um, when, when we're in our trauma, like it seems that probably all of us on this call in one way or another, you can talk about it if you want to, um, have experienced some pain. Um, we, we've got to be mindful of how that plays out in our bodies, right? <clears throat> and how we can be activated 
And I know that because of my own pain, there were years where on a dime, someone could say something or <clears throat> respond in a particular way. And I, I was back there in my pain, in my trauma. And so, um, and it's really hard. Like, how do you police that? I'd say, I, I wouldn't want to police that, you know? And, <clears throat> and then you're in danger of tone policing. And so, yeah, you don't want to do that. But I, 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 I have concerns that you have on this, Eugene, and and I'm not really sure what to do because it feels like the wild, wild west sometimes. Mm. Mm. For maybe some of our young, younger like listeners who are going into the pastorate, or you know, <coughs> even seminarians, young leaders, um, any kind of tips? You know, I'm sure nobody wants to be a narcissistic leader. Um, yeah. You know, and, and any kind of maybe tips you would give. Um, maybe things to think about um, for leader, you know, younger leaders, um, you know, yeah. kind of warning signs, whatever that may be. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I'm seeing, um, let, let's, let's like, uh, I, I could offer some tips, but let me tell you what I'm seeing. <clears throat> and in particular, we may have some of the same friends. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I won't name any names, but I'm thinking in particular in the Asian church planning community, thinking mm. of the Northeast in particular. And some folks that I know who are <clears throat> doing this in a way that feels much more healthy in the sense that they're doing it in a more um, collective way. They're, they're planting with partners and they're planting more relationally. Um, mm. Their networks are less hierarchical and more accountable. Um, <clears throat> they're answering the question for one another, how do you experience me? Um, it's not as personality driven um, mm. and, and it, it's not, they're not looking for that, the one person, the next, Tim Keller, the next Matt Chandler, the next whoever, right? They're they're saying, um, what are the unique needs of my community, my parish? Sometimes they're really thinking in in you know in a kind of kind of micro community kinds of ways, um, three, four, five uh, blocks. Um, how how do we best love and serve our community? And that's what's inspiring me. Like people often ask, um, is it all bleak? And, and I'm like, I actually, I'm learning from some of the younger church planners that I'm meeting, and particularly planners of color who are doing this um, in new ways and who are sort of creating new, even models of church planning or new church starts or whatever you want to call them, right? So, uh, yeah, there's some hope. I, I think it's when, you know, we're in relationship, when we are accountable, um, when we're not lone rangers in ministry. Uh, I, I think the model, the model by and large that I was, uh, I was a part of for years myself because I'm a white middle-aged guy now, right? Uh, the model that seemed to work was the model of finding the really talented white dude who was going to go out uh, with $250,000 or $500,000 and um, uh, parachute into a particular community that uh, he'd not done any real um, exegeting of any investigation of had no really right and just kind of plop himself in there as the savior of the community and uh i'll just tell you that's i mean i hope i see you nodding so i hopefully you're not nodding off but like nodding in the sense of like <laughs> i hope you you see the folly of that uh and you know even the church that i was part of in san francisco was a church plant going back to the late 90s and i think the church planner would say now yeah that's exactly what i did i didn't have conversations with planners or, or pastors who had been there for decades. I just, I just thought, you know, I, I need to, I need to go out and save, save San Francisco. So uh, we we're learning, we're learning. It's taking a, a long time and a lot of us don't want to give up our power um, or our old ways, but we're learning. 
What would you say to those folks who maybe not the local level, but like the national level, like you see all these pastoral failures take place and you even see like people calling it out like Christianity Today and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, but yeah. what's kind of like, I think discouraging about that is all those guys, they're still pastoring. Like Driscoll's yeah. still pastoring, Tulian's mm -hmm. still pastoring, James McDonald, they're yeah. still pastoring, you know? And so yeah. it almost makes like those efforts seem like futile or like, what's the point? And when you kind of, you know, if people experience that type of discouragement, like what would you say to like, to yeah. that to the context well that that's what makes me understand the rage and even you know sort of going back to yeah. uh some of what we see on social media like i get it um i get how powerless it feels um it it's it's really frustrating and i've, I've had some personal kind of engagement with some of those different stories and it's maddening you know um because there's uh they're really quick to sort of uh use the gospel in ways and use grace in ways that uh i think fundamentally change the meaning of it, you know, and, and pervert it and distort it. Uh, so I, I want to first empathize with the discouragement that people feel. I know, I know people, specific people who've worked with those pastors who are really discouraged, you know, and mm -hmm. feel like I, I, it cost me, um, it cost me my life. It cost me financial resources. It cost me my, you know, my way of, it cost me friends. It cost me so much to, uh, say the hard things. And, he gets to go back to work and start a new church and write a new book. And I can't even find a job in ministry. Um, that's excruciating, right? That's uh, so that's the first thing. But I think the next thing would be um, just to just to sort of reiterate what we were talking about. Then try to resist going and just, just try to blow up social media with it. Like I, I get it. I get I get um, the important power of storytelling. And the way that actually social media uh, and has contributed to to keeping people accountable, right? To getting the word out. I think that happened with the Ravi Zacharias story with Lori Thompson, and I admire her like crazy. But there was a time when I think no one believed her, and uh, it took people helping get the story out. Um, I get that, but I'd say go to a therapist, <laughs> like scream scream in the therapy room for one or two hours a week, you know. <laughs> And then once you've caught your breath and you've found your center again, find your way to some healthy and productive conversations about how, how um, in the midst of this massive reckoning we're in, we're, we're going to reconstruct, you know, but it's going to take some healthy folks to do it. We're not going to reconstruct reactively, if that makes sense, right? It's going to take some really healthy and thoughtful leaders. And that's, that's where I'm, I'm meeting. Um, I'm meeting some of these folks. Maybe you guys know a guy named Yukon Chu. Um, out on the East Coast. Uh, he's a part of the Ethnos Network, but you know, a healthy church planner, leader within a uh, within a community, um, a church, but also within a larger community where, where I'm like, oh yeah, you're doing it. You're doing it well, you're doing it wisely. We need leaders like that who are uh, not concerned about likes or social media followings or not sized of church. They're just doing the work. Um, and they're doing it kind of quietly and they're doing it kind of humbly. And that's that's a name that I, I think I probably say, but very few people know. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, bring any unwelcome attention to him. Just to say that's one person who comes to mind where I'm like, hey, there's a, there's a guy who's doing it really well, but he's not gonna, he's not making a name for himself because he doesn't care to really, you know? Yeah, and I guess to close, if I could add one more thing, I think one thing that everyone could do is uh, take some time to read your book. Uh, when narcissism comes to church 
Um, we, we've really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, we've really enjoyed your work on this. And I'm sorry that you're known as a narcissist guy, but uh, I, I hope you know it, it served the church well um, with certain people that have been affected. So thank you so much for your time, uh, Chuck. It's been really helpful, uh, really impactful for all of us, I think. And yeah, we loved all, all of our talks with you. Yeah, thanks guys. I'd love to stay in touch. It's, it's really, it's heartening to me to see what you're doing, the conversations that you're having, but also to know that, that you guys are pastors and you're doing it out there in a kind of local church way. So thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Thank, thank you, Chuck. Chuck.